Congress wasn't built for someone like Tammy Duckworth. As a woman of color, a new mother, and a disabled veteran, Tammy Duckworth has had to make Congress work for her. I spoke to Senator Duckworth and started by asking her what it felt like to first enter the male-dominated space of Congress in 2013. Well, it was really interesting in that uh, we had Leader Pelosi. And so we were led by a woman, a very strong woman, um, who had been speaker. And so it was, I think, very uh, fortunate to have that role model that you could look to someone who was very active in teaching new members, especially the women members, to speak up. And one of the things she always said was, you know, when you sat around in a circle, especially as a freshman, uh, you're afraid to say something because the imposter syndrome is very real. And when I would go into the chambers, even though I'd served in combat, I'd often been the only woman in an all-male unit— I had this real strong sense of imposter syndrome, like, what am I doing here? You know, these, you know, there's there's so-and-so, you know, there's Sam Farr, who's been a, a congressman for literally in the decades, and, you know, all of these people that I'd seen on TV, and it was it was very, very intimidating, but Leader Pelosi was one who said, you know, who she didn't let you, let your turn pass by without saying something, and then she would have you um, said something, and you were, and then the next person, like, the conversation moved on and two other people and then somebody else, a man picked up what you had to say. She'd, she'd be sure to say, wait a minute, Tammy said that. Wow. And and direct it back. Wow. Um, but, but she really left it on you to push yourself. But she was backup. But basically. she was backup. Yeah. Which was, which was a good example to have. Wow. That's powerful, actually. And I would sort of wish for that in a lot of moments <laughs> in my life, too. Yeah. Now, I wonder then, thinking more recently, I know that you re- semi-recently had a daughter— Yes, my second one. Yeah. So how did you think about that, knowing the rules that were in place at the time? What went through your mind as to how you might have to adjust, maybe changing things or hoping to change things to allow for you to bring your daughter on the floor? How did that progress? So I had my my first daughter in 2014, so the second year of my first term in the House of Representatives. And it was actually while I was on maternity leave with her that I decided to run for United States Senate. Wow. And I will say that with my second daughter, I was definitely much more of a rule breaker. <laughs> well, I should say, maybe I was more of a rule follower my first time because, you know, there's imposter syndrome. I'm new and and all of that. So I actually had my daughter, my first daughter at home and was out from Washington for three months and was a, and, and took my maternity leave then. But I missed all those votes. Mm. And now here we are in uh, 2018 and I'm about to give birth to my daughter. I'm now in the Senate, and the difference in votes was two. So wow. every vote counted. We couldn't afford to have me out for three months. Wow. If um, And if you go on maternity leave, the Senate rules say you are not allowed to vote and you're not allowed to introduce legislation. Whereas in the House, I was able to, but in the Senate, mm-hmm. I couldn't. So I couldn't officially take maternity leave. And I, in fact, had to decide to give birth in Washington, D.C. so I wow. could be nearby for votes. Wow. And so knowing that sort of empowered me to say, well, damn it, then if I, you know, th- if these are the rules, then I'm bringing my baby when I come to vote. And in fact, when she was just 10 days old, they needed my vote. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so you came with her. At- so I came with her, yeah. And, and how did that feel? <laughs> it felt Fabulous. Fantastic. It also felt long overdue. And it was funny because I received support leading up to it that the fight to be able to bring onto the floor from uh, um, there were definitely a lot of strange bedfellows. I mean, certainly the the, the Democratic women uh, were very supportive. But then I had some of the Republican men came forward, and it was almost generational. Some of the younger mm. members, I, I, I remember uh, Marco Rubio, whom I don't think I've ever voted the same with him on 
you know, 10% of our votes, came up to me on the floor and said, Tammy, I hear you want to change the rules to bring your daughter onto the floor. And I was sort of stealing myself of what he's going to say because I will support you. I'm backing mm. you up, whatever you need. I, wow. I wish I could have brought my children because his kids were young wow. too. And I was like blown away. And Roy Blunt of Missouri, um, whom I campaigned against, <laughs> came up to me and said, Tammy, as soon as I'm the chairman of the rules committee, I will change the rule for you. Because I remember wow. when I could bring my children on the floor when I was in the house and how great that was. And I, you know, wow. I want that for that, here. That's so, And that's so important to say that as much as we're sitting here talking mm-hmm. about gender issues, that there's a generational component in this too. Right. For sure. Right. And yet some of the members who were, you know, a little bit older were had questions like, well, is she going to breastfeed on the floor? Like that was some <laughs> horrible thing or like, like, like that would be such a scandal or they asked what the dress code was going to be for the baby. No. Yeah. Yeah. Because there's a Senate dress code. You have to wear blazers and you have to wear to- closed toe shoes and, I, and no hats. And uh, I said, well, um, she's a baby, so probably a beanie, and I'm not taking that off of her. Oh, my god! She's probably being a onesie. I guess I could put a blazer on her if I need to. And she's too young for shoes, so socks. Wow. But literally, I mean, you know, it's like the most inane questions. Like, why are you asking this? So Rules. Right? Rules. So people are just thinking yeah. rules. Right, right. So I did put a blazer on her that day. <laughs> Oh, my gosh. I'm going to go online and find that just yeah, to see if yeah, there's an image of that because yeah. that's wonderful. <laughs> I also want to say, as a woman who works in a largely mm-hmm. male field, seeing you sitting here and talk about imposter syndrome, as you have a couple of times, mm-hmm. on the one hand, is infuriating, and on the other hand, is really empowering to hear you oh, say that yeah. since I feel the same thing. And mm-hmm. I also don't necessarily bring it up because I mm-hmm. think— I don't know. I guess I feel I want to have people not assume that I'm worried about that sort of stuff, but you're mm-hmm. right. And so actually related to that, when you were saying that Speaker Pelosi was backup, are there ways in which you think as a woman legislator that your strategy is different in, in how you address or interact in Congress? It's a cliche, but I think it's definitely consensus building and, mm-hmm. and, and really working a lot of those relationships. We are very fortunate in the Senate that um, uh, we do have the, the women senators group. So we do support each other uh, as much as possible and try to back each other up uh, across the aisle. Um, and, and you've seen there have been some images of, you know, Lisa Murkowski or Susan Collins who uh, voted uh, on some choice issues or some things like that where it was Democratic women senators who stood next to them to provide um, them with support as they were making some really tough votes that they were really being harassed um, for by their male counterpart, by their male colleagues. Yeah. Does that feel different in the Senate than it did in the House on that count? It does, because there are much, many, many more women in the House. And again, um, we have, you know, a female leader uh, and in the Senate, um, I mean, Chuck is great, but we just don't have that type of leadership over in terms of, uh, you know, we have Patty Murray. She's the first. She's the first wow. woman leader over here on the, wow. on the Senate side. And so um, we certainly uh, could use more representation. Now, looking in from the outside and seeing the large number of women that came in in this last mm-hmm. election, right? So I was on the outside cheering and thinking, yay. Yeah. But what I'm really curious about is, did that offer a different sense of a we to you, being on the inside, did that awareness above and beyond the fact that we need more representation from women, mm-hmm. did that change the ethos for you in any way? I just felt like we had more center of mass. 
uh, and and I don't get to go over to the House side very much as we're over, just over in the Senate side. And, and so the total number of female senators didn't change. But I will tell you that on the House side, I was over there, I don't know, before the State of the Union, so there was a waiting line for the female stalls in the female bathroom. It's like the first time that had happened. <laughs> like, there's so many of us now, we actually have to wait again. Oh, my gosh. Um, so, you know, I was like, well, I was like, well, then you need to change to get some more stalls over here. <laughs> but but it was nice, you know, so exactly. we're all standing around <laughs> talking to each other. And that was really nice. And, and so there was a lot of um, uh, shop talk going on. You know, as you're, as you're just chatting with each other, and and yeah, it was, it was good. To, it was a good feeling. I wonder, also, given mm-hmm. what we've been talking about mm-hmm. here, and looking at the historic number of women right now who are running for president, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts at this moment? Um, I mean, I, I I'm so proud, and I'm so proud that there's no questions of whether or not they're qualified, as there was with Geraldine Ferraro or, or for uh, the women before her, and I think um, you know Hillary Clinton and and all the women who ran prior. Uh, who, um, you know, uh, showed that women are just equally qualified. But what I really like is the fact that no one has questioned these women's ability to do this job. Um, Maybe it's a reflection on who's in the White House right now, but, but, um, you know, I I don't think people look at any one of the women that are running and think, oh, she's not capable. But it's it's definitely more how to rack and stack the the various um, people who are running in terms of, you know, uh, almost ex- more experience. Like, you know, some of the, these women are seen as having more experience as many of the men who are running who are very young. I guess I'll, I'll ask one last question, and mm-hmm. it's kind of a goofy question, but I'm going to okay. ask it anyway. <laughs> if you were bestowed with magical political powers and could do anything right mm-hmm. now to make the space in Congress feel more inclusive, what might you do? Um, I would get more diversity in the staff mm. at the highest levels because mm. that's not there and we're trying very hard to do that and the, the staff are even I think in many ways less diverse than the membership especially if you look at the house so it's still a largely white male workforce and mm. um, there are not very many females chiefs of staff there's not very many mm. female legislative directors and these are people who are advising their their representative their senators on the bills to write so if mm. you have even though you could have a female senator if her advisors are all white men they're not going to be as attuned to criminal justice reform issues economic injustice issues um, uh, equal pay and all of that. And so for I'll give you an example of how it makes a big difference, uh, even though it's not about the laws. My chief of staff, Caitlin Fahey, has been with me uh, from the time she walked on as an unpaid volunteer. And my deputy chief of staff is a woman as well. And uh, they, they belong to the women's chiefs group who get together in a bipartisan way and try to solve some of these issues and, and agree to bring up some of these legislation, work together on the legislation and nudge their bosses in the right direction. But also, Caitlin um, is the one who's been my right-hand person developing my own leave policies. And we have 12 weeks of paid family leave for birth uh, of a child, adoption, fostering, also to take care of an ill family member. So it's hmm. open equally to men or women wow. uh, in my office. And this is something that Caitlin helped me develop. Having a female chief was really important as part of that process. And she and I were mm. pregnant and we gave birth within three months of each other. And oh, wow. My deputy chief is pregnant now. And <laughs> oh so, you know, gosh. so that changes the ethos in the office because right. now the young men in my office sees it as perfectly okay for women to go have a baby and take exactly. time off and then come back to work. And and the senator did it. And it the, makes it pragmatic and, and real time. Yeah, and, and, and it actually didn't hurt anything and everybody was just fine. And so now mm. I'm, I'm waiting. I'm just praying that one of my... Um, male uh, staff members actually has a child and takes the takes the family leave and sets the example. 
Tammy Duckworth is the junior senator from Illinois. So, Joanne, what is it about the executive role in politics that seems, at least, to be an even greater barrier to women than the legislative role? So I want to say two things in response to that. One of them is, if you're talking about electability, you have to complicate that question because the fact of the matter is Hillary Clinton won votes. I mean, she proved that she was electable. Yes. There are larger questions here that we need to talk about, but the question of who is electable and who isn't is is a more complicated question that I think maybe we can come back to. But before we do that, the second thing I want to mention here has to do with the bigger reason why I think it's hard to elect a woman president. And in part, I do think that has to do with the symbolism of the job. But more than that, I think that has to do with the fact that if you're talking about an old boys network, that certainly seems to me structurally, that's going to be much more in play running for president than it is going to be running for Congress when you can have something like a grassroots campaign. But you are the are the source of 20th and 21st century political wisdom here. So tell me, am I making sense? Well, I think You're making a lot of sense, especially for the past, (laughs) the ever-growing number of Democratic candidates obviously (laughs) suggests that dozens of people feel it's become easier to throw your hat in the ring at any rate, if not actually become president. So I think some of the older barriers around fundraising and networks are changing in front of our very eyes. But I think that the other factor, which you didn't get to, is this whole question about electability. Mm -hmm. I think it's often code for, well, we've never quite done that before, or we can't be sure of that. And my question for you is, what did that look like in the 19th century? There must have been versions of that, right? But I think... I think I would add to your description before I plunge into my late 18th century example of that. I would add to that part of that same message is that person doesn't look like what I think that position looks like, right? I think right now it's worse than that person doesn't look like what I think that position is. I think it's that person doesn't look like what I think people are going to think that position looks like. And that drives me crazy. Yes. It's people passing judgment on what they think the ethos is. Exactly. And so they're saying over and over again, well, we collectively are not ready for this, even though I personally may be. Okay. Take us to the 19th century. I'm going to, I'm taking you better. I'm taking you to the 1790s. And this stands out in my mind because of this guy's name. So in the late 18th century, in the 1790s, in the first 10 years of the government, you know, there's pretty much a standard elite white male guy in positions of leadership. And generally speaking, those people were from a certain class of society, although they wouldn't have identified themselves as belonging to classes. People weren't quite talking in Mm -hmm. that way yet. But in the late 1790s, there was a fellow of slightly lower social status who had the wonderful name Swanwick. And the reason why I know Mr. Swanwick existed is because when he got elected to Congress in the late 1790s, there's this chorus of outrage that a fellow of the like of Swanwick 
could be elected to Congress. And there are all of these letters from people saying, Swanwick? <laughs> really? <laughs> Swanwick? And, you know, we're not talking about a vast sea of difference. We're talking about someone who a group of elite men thought was slightly less elite than they were, but seemed like the wrong sort of person to be in Congress and not the sort of person they wanted to be in Congress with. So certainly the who is the us and who is the them version of electability goes back to the beginning of the Republic. Well, Joanne, since I've been in the history business uh, for a while, history biz. it has occurred to me that when I started, there were not a lot of female professors. Is this something that you encountered your own, quote, electability dilemma in? <laughs> was, there, was there a moment when you thought, gee, I'm interested in history, but I can't be a history professor. I'm a woman. I guess I would say it wasn't, you know, there's like, in a sense, it's a cliche that you hear so often, representation matters, representation matters. And so many people say it so often that it's easy to forget the meaning behind that. But I would say in my case, as a woman academic, that proved to be very true. I think it wasn't so much that I thought to myself when I began grad school, huh, there's a surprisingly small <laughs> number of women surrounding me here, and my classes are all taught by men. I don't think I thought about it because so many things really are populated by a majority of men. It, it, I don't think it struck me until I knew I had to get up in front of a group of people um, and give a lecture at a prominent institution, and it suddenly dawned on me that I didn't know what a woman sounded like standing wow. up in front of a group of people with authority and talking about history. I didn't, I didn't know what that was supposed to sound like. And I had wonderful images in my head of men and what they sounded like, but I, didn't, I couldn't envision myself doing it. And so I actually went and found two really prominent women historians who were together on a panel and traveled, drove up, I think it was about an hour away, um, to sit in the audience and watch these women hold forth, which they did. They were powerful women. They, it was Pauline Mayer and Joyce Appleby, and they, they held that room. The room was largely male. They were in control, and I just absorbed that, and I just sort of thought, okay, there. there okay, now, now I can, if I'm Swanwick, <laughs> I've just seen some other Swanwicks doing what I want to do, so I know it can be done. So, you know, it's a it's so cliche to say representation matters, but in my personal life, I couldn't have a more powerful example of, of that really shaping what I believed I could do. But here's my question for you then. Obviously, <laughs> you're in a, coming as a white guy from a very different perspective here, but you've had experience in your past working with legislators and, and female politicians. In what sense have those experiences shaped your understanding of these kinds of questions. Yeah, I worked for City Council President Carol Bellamy, City Council President of New York City, back in the late 1970s, uh, early 80s. And uh, it did shape my understanding of politics a lot. First off, I hadn't really thought very much about politics in gender terms. So superficially, uh, when I joined Carol's staff, I learned an entirely new vocabulary uh, quickly mm. uh, because there were not mailmen in Carol's world 
there were letter carriers. I, I mm. like, in my first week on the job, learned an entirely new nomenclature for wow. every government job out there. And, you know, I'll, I will tell you, this felt, uh, does this matter? I spent at least a day or two thinking, oh, I don't know if this matters. Within three or four days, it became so natural and it became very important to me. And I began teaching other people about gender-neutral nomenclature. Now, that was relatively superficial. I'm not saying it's not important, but the real takeaway was watching the way Carol had to avoid issues that she was passionate about and very expert at because they were associated with what women care about. Mm. Daycare, for instance, vaccinations, public health for children, all associated with women. And Carol was great at that, and she made a real difference in those areas. But she had to go out of her way to be seen doing things that are associated with guys at the time. Hmm. I was her budget advisor. I probably wouldn't have had a job if Carol wasn't at pains to demonstrate that she was actually really expert at finance and budget, stuff that were associated with guys in the late 1970s and early 80s. And so this whole world of meaning and association and assumptions opened up for me just from working uh, for a female uh, elected official. And I was somewhat savvy about politics at the time, but I had no idea until I actually worked for Carol Bellamy. You know, that's interesting because it, it drives home for me the fact that we're talking about a two-step process here. And the first step is women getting in these offices so that they have power. But the second step is women in those offices being able to behave in a natural manner and be passionate about what they're passionate about and do what it is that they choose to do and act as they choose to act without trying to counteract or or prove how male-like they are. And, And it's that second step that it's intriguing to think about right now, I think, because of the very thing that you mentioned, the fact that there's a group now of people, and in that idea of a group, there's power. And a lot of these women are aggressively stepping forward and saying, you know, not just I'm here and I'm a woman, but I'm a woman and I'm going to behave like a woman in office here. And that in and of itself has a special strength to it. I'm really intrigued to see how that's going to work itself through and and what's going to be the outcome of that. I, I think that's such an important point, Joanne, and you talked earlier about the importance of representation. I don't think we get the real payoff from representation until we get to what you call the second stage, until women can get beyond demonstrating that they can do what a man can do and are free to do what they actually want to do as a human being. So, Joanne, are we there? Are we in stage two? We know we've reached the Swanwick stage, but are we in the Freeman stage two of the political process? I I think there are glimmers of stage two. I think I can see them, and I think I want to see more of them, and I want to see them outlast this election. But I guess I can say that I, I certainly see more of that second stage now than I remember seeing in my time of being aware of politics during my lifetime. 